Welcome to the Haunted Hacker Podcast, episode July, volume one. Um, last month I did five, I think, total, um, all within a week. Uh, news, I'm speaking in Western Michigan uh, for Aaron Bregg and the CloudCon 2022 on the 24th. So make sure you get your tickets and go out there. Um, a little news on the on the home front, uh, Hackers for Vets is finally a reality. And we got our first, uh, very first donation last week. Uh, from Eric Taylor from Barricade uh, Solutions uh, in a total of $15,000, which will go to an award for uh, a service uh, serviceman who's been separated, honorably discharged, and applies for the award. And that will go to vouchers for certifications, training materials, books, whatever they need. Um, and that's the initiative that I started this year, and it's, it's already moving pretty fast. And if you want to donate, they have a Shave the Beard charity uh, going on for IT innovation this year. And uh, I have been brought up on that list. And if we hit $300,000, this beard goes away in November. Um, so donate. Uh, I know a lot of people would support you donating to get rid of this beard. Um, so, yeah, stay tuned. Today we have Glenn Day, um, retired Navy Admiral, or uh, I'm sorry, not Admiral. Uh, <laughs> Commander. Yeah, Commander. Commander. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I was in the enlisted ranks, so the, the officer ranks are pretty foreign to me still. Uh, so Glenn has a, a great background. I've done a lot of research on him, uh, seen some of the stuff he's done, and uh, really lucky to have him on the show today. Glenn, welcome, and uh, thanks, for, thanks for showing up. Thanks for being here. It means a lot. Yeah, no, Mike, I'm, I'm a pleasure for me uh, being here. I love what you're doing in the markets. Uh, definitely a, uh, a needed forum, and, and whatever I can do to help contribute towards that. Um, my pleasure. hundred percent. I appreciate that, man. Um, so tell us, Glenn, t tell us how you got into cyber. Um, talk to me about your, your naval career. I, I have a, have a really uh, uh, interesting stuff going on with the military. Uh, I have a background in SIGINT. So we naturally, you know, when I saw your profile, I was like, I've, I've got to talk to this guy. Um, so <laughs> tell us about your story. Tell us how you got into it and what you're doing and, and where you're going. Yeah, yeah, it's a, a pretty diverse story. So I, when I first got my commission uh, as an ensign, I, I was in uh, uh, surface warfare, uh, primarily focused on uh, uh, cruiser destroyer class ships um, and started out as the missiles officer. Um, so uh, with the missile systems themselves that were actually early on, believe it or not, um, PC-based mm -hmm. uh, using, using a, a number of other technologies, that also uh, raised the concern that these systems could be vulnerable in the middle of a war, not, not good. So one of the things I had to do as the owner of these systems, um, I had to make sure that the vulnerabilities of these systems were being addressed, not primarily from what we know of cyber today, but um, a lot of the fundamentals were there. Was it hardened? Was it uh, truly... Uh, need to know access to these systems um, and can we likely trust it if we needed to push the button of, of it going in the right area. So, so over time, um, that became more of a collateral duty, um, not a, a, a this is my role and this is all I do is cyber, but it was a critical sub-function of my primary function. Um, later on, I then switched my focus from being surface warfare to information warfare. So I was one of what they call uh, 
one of the first information warfare professionals. Um, and uh, my, my first full-time job at that was working for then General Powell, um, the, the, uh, of the Joint Chiefs, in which we had some special projects in the basement of the Pentagon. And I then took over ownership of the first ever satellite uplink from the roof of the Pentagon using um, commercial satellites, but with uh, encrypted uh, technologies to support the, uh, the Bosnian war contingency. So all of those things effectively built my initial um, entree um, into cyber uh, to the point that it became a full-time job. And then after that, after uh, leaving the, the Navy, I took a number of positions uh, as a chief information security officer and was also the first uh, chief privacy officer for LA County in which I built their HIPAA program. That's super interesting too. Um, I remember when uh, they were talking about having a privacy officer in LA County, uh, which is really shocking that I'm actually talking to the privacy officer. Um, so we have a lot of uh, connects in our military history, I think. Um, I was signal intelligence, and then I was one of the Navy's first CTNs, which is the Network Attack and Defense Cyber Warfare Rate. Uh, and this was before they even had a school or you know study material, materials or any kind of manuals. Um, we had to go before a board, and then it just you know, we got into it and started researching and writing the courses and stuff like that. But the Navy seemed to progress very fast when it came to cyber warfare and those rates. Um, I know now, uh, even even the special operations uh, seems to be a lot different. Uh, SEALs are now, a lot of the Navy SEALs will go in um, designating that's what they're, the rate they're going for. Like it actually became a rate, which was super surprising to me. Uh, but there, there's a lot of really cool technology in the DoD space, especially when it comes to satellites. You, you mentioned satellite missions and stuff like that. Um, I worked on some of the platforms that that they maintained and uh, did maintenance on the satellites from those platforms, which is really cool. So with your military background and transitioning over to a privacy officer, tell me about that role as a privacy officer and, and what it entailed. Because it's people out there, I'm sure they haven't heard of that that role before. A good majority of the people that, you know, especially in the underground and hackers and stuff, they don't know what that is. Um, we know what privacy is, but we don't even have a, a clue as to what a privacy officer would do for accounting. So tell me about that. Yeah, no, it was very interesting. And, and as it was the first um, privacy officer role L.A. County ever had. And if most people don't know, L.A. County is bigger than most states. Yeah. It is huge um, and, and a complex healthcare organization that not only included um, eight hospitals that it, <clears throat> that it ran directly, but it also included mental health. And, oh. and, and as well as um, the sheriff's department had its own hospital. Um, so there was a lot of, as well as public health in which the Corona thing in regards to how do you coordinate operations in the middle of a pandemic? <clears throat> so all of those factors came into play, and it was interesting in which it was the first time I was ever directly focused on privacy for healthcare. Um, with my pr prior other jobs working as a CISO, it was, well, these are the rules, and this is a risk that we need to mitigate. And those often became enough for the different executives to support it. However, with healthcare, 
a completely different culture, they actually have a trump card in which they can say, interesting, but that's going to get in the way. I'm saving somebody's life. How do you counter that? So what it taught me was if I don't better align towards the healthcare culture, um, there's nothing I can do to overwrite the way that they're actually managing um, the privacy of these patients in which they actually really do care, but they also care about saving lives. And so these protocols had to be developed in a line that would be compliant with the regulations, but also address the cultural aspects of how this would actually be made operational. So yeah, I, that's pretty fascinating. And, and to think about data privacy when it comes to healthcare, um, you know, we've seen over the years since the beginning, we've seen financial institutions and data privacy and the issues there. Uh, I think my first run in with data privacy or just privacy in general with healthcare would have been the VA when the VA lost a lot of, you know, service members, social. Yeah. All of, <laughs> our information, all of our information. And then OPM got compromised, which all of our stuff was with OPM as well. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the, the data privacy role, I think in any organization is super critical, not just to, to help secure the data, but also to look at risk and, and pain points within an organization's network and operations. And I know Envision X kind of does that, that same functionality. Is that, is that right? Is that close to yeah. being accurate? Cool. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it definitely does. And, and being, once again, um, a prior privacy officer and also a partner at Ernst & Young, mm -hmm. in which I consulted for some of the biggest companies in the world. But as, as, as privacy is important, um, with all the prior breaches that have already happened, <clears throat> most people have to assume that their private details of their date of birth, their, their, their social security number, mm. it's been compromised more than once already and likely exists in the dark web looking to be monetized at some level. Oh, absolutely. That was, that was more um, yesterday. That, that's how it used to be. Mm. The bigger question is, what can they do with that data that could cause even more harm? And, and so it's, it's getting access to your current records, whether they be financial, whether they be health, or whether it be about your em employment. So these other attributes of why the privacy data matters more now than it even did back then relates to the future implications, but it also relates to the right to be forgotten. These new privacy laws that came out of the EU under GDPR and now is resident with many of the, the, the states, including California, effectively um, replicating those European regulations to really appreciate the fact that when I am no longer a patient or customer of your organization and you no longer have a legal right to retain my data, I want you to get rid of it not just obscure it in which it can be recovered later, it is defensively deleted that it can never be recovered as part of my right to be forgotten. As, as, as logical as that seems, this has transformed not only privacy management, but data management, because it's not limited to simply the, the systems of record um, in the databases, which are a little bit easier 
to manage the unstructured data. It includes every email, every phone call, every PDF that went back and forth. You've got to now better account for that, including if it was backed up or put in an archive. So it's something that is created, from my view, one of the biggest challenges for data management related to data privacy. Um, and, and many companies still struggle. Yeah, for sure. So, so you weren't terrified when you took the role as privacy officer? Because to me, that, that, that sounds, like, sounds like working at Microsoft and checking the code and either putting it back into production or releasing it out to the wild. It seems like a double-edged sword. What were your thoughts going into that? Well, you, you, you know, it, it was, uh, wasn't terrifying. Um, it, was, it was actually motivating because one thing about California in general is that it was one of the leaders on healthcare privacy even before the federal regulations came into play. So it was already something that was a part of their culture. However, the biggest thing is, is that no matter what they thought it was already, it was way more impacting than what they really imagined operationally. <clears throat> and, and, and so my biggest thing wasn't really the tech, it wasn't really the data, it was really the people factor. Mm -hmm. How do you reset the expectations for people that work in one of the most complicated data environments in the world, but also were viewed to have some of the most outdated technologies in the world. This is before the electronic health record became, you know, the, uh, a, 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 the, the next way. They were still dealing with a whole lot of paper um, in which they, you know, paper records were still dominant. And, and the ease and access and the portability of one record going from one entity to another, including with the insurance uh, uh, providers, it, it is still very complicated, way better today. Mm -hmm. uh, but but that to me was the bigger challenge. It wasn't uh, the tech; it was the people. people. And which you you better understand the people from a from a process and then from a culture perspective. Uh, all the other things start to fall into place. Yeah, I think the the healthcare industry gets hit quite hard all the time, um, and they're an industry that's not geared towards doing cyber defense as a primary action. It, it's kind of a safety net. Um, and a lot of the smaller hospitals uh, that require state funding, um, it's a little bit more difficult for them as well to, to, to be proactive uh, because they don't have those budgets. You know, you talked about risk when it comes to, you know, health records and, and data records uh, regarding medical. You know, I, I remember back when APT1 first got labeled mm -hmm. and looking at some of the intel that they were gathering. And what was funny was it wasn't, it wasn't financial data. It wasn't, uh, you know, your CV with, with all your certifications or your financial statements. No, no, it was medical records. And they were doing this to build dossiers on specific individuals. And how easy is it to grab a healthcare database and do a query for, I don't know, let's say a president's name. You know, you hit a hospital that is known for, you know, let's LA County, you know, actors or whoever, and you have these high profile targets, yes. you know, they build those dossiers. And, and I think risk to the individual is super impactful. And I think we're seeing a lot of that as time goes by, the media has done a really good job at, at highlighting the impact it has. But I, I don't think that as, as an industry, we've gone far enough to explain the risk, not just on your personal data, but how your personal data plays into 
the critical infrastructure and how, how it feeds into national security. Um, and I'm sure with your background, you've had those thoughts as well, right? Oh, no, I, I, absolutely. And, and you've got to get to, to, to the, the core. Why do the bad guys want that data? Um, and and, and, and you, you keep asking that for whatever role you're in, for whatever company, not just those that are highly regulated, because one of the things I, I also um, specialize in is the protection of high-tech intellectual property. Nice. And which at the end of the day, both reasons, they want to monetize it. And which you see a lot of the ransomware now, they're not hacking because it's cool and neat to do. They're making more money now than they've ever done before. And often what I hear, the bad guys know our data better than we do. And they're often right because they know what they're looking for. And they know the value of that data that sometimes get lost with the companies that either collect or generate that data. Or they assume that um, they know where all of it's at and it's being accounted for, in which the data is very pervasive, easy to replicate, and literally could be stored anywhere. Oh, and, sure. and, and while we're protecting primarily the systems of record, they're definitely the right thing to do. If you can't protect and identify everywhere that data likely sits and gets processed, they always go for the weakest link. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so that's how I look at it. But, but if you appreciate they're doing this first and foremost for monetary gain or some type of future influence they can have over you if they get the right details. Um, influence of, from a healthcare perspective, potentially shaming a celebrity because they may be going through mental health treatment that they hold sincerely confidential, way more confidential than they do their financial records or, 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 or something of that nature. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, when they had the, the data breach at the VA, that was one of the things I thought of was how many veterans records were lost to the wrong hands that had, you know, chronic issues that had to be taken care of or had positions in the military that were trusted, you know, with the TSSCI clearance. And they become, they become prime targets for the attackers because not only is there financial gain to be had there, but also the intel gathering on that individual is, is huge. And so I've been watching the, the, the temperament of the internet for probably about the last couple of months, just seeing, you know, kind of how things are going and, and the crime and, and the way things are lining up. And what it looks like is there's a huge influx of Asian countries that are doing, it's not scamming, it's not phishing. It's more of just trying to get close to people to get information. You see it a lot it's on social. Yeah, you, <laughs> you see it a lot on, on social social media, um, dating sites, like all the above. And it, it was a huge influx during a pandemic, and everybody's trying to figure out. Okay, there's obviously a mission here. Well, what are they trying to accomplish? Um, and I think that people need to to learn, as you know, industry wide, not just cybersecurity, but healthcare. Um, law enforcement, all that stuff. People need to learn their operations. And, and this is why I say that. Because when you said that the bad guy knows their data better than they do, it's because we study all the operations for that, that company and figure out different groups that handle different things. And as, a, as an employee, when you walk into a building, you have your role, you go sit down at your desk, you do your job, right? Not a lot of people you know, wander outside their little business group. Yeah. But as hackers, we don't think that way. 
we want to see how every piece works together. And that's why it's so important to not only protect your data, but know your operations. Because a lot of companies, if you ask them what their critical assets are, they have no clue. And I, I'm sure you run into that with, with Envision X too. Yeah, no, all, all, all the time. Or, or they, they, they oversimplify what their, their data environments are. And, it's, and, and they, they know what data they have <clears throat> in, in, in a general sense. They know that they've got IP and even some specific IP. They know that they've got privacy data. <clears throat> but the bigger question is, what does it take to really know your data so you're in control of the data. Right. Just because I know we got data out there. Once again, if you knew the data so well and you bought all these other data protection controls, why are the bad guys still winning? And it's because, as you said, with the swim lanes, that different silos of data um, are, are, are hard enough to manage. But when those silos are in different technologies or different file formats, Technically, it can be a challenge to get that global view. But the bigger thing is, is that often IT is put in the position of inventorying and classifying the data in which if it's regulated, it's not so hard because the regulations define what does privacy data look like? What does PCI data look like? What do SOX financial data look like? However, when it gets to intellectual property, that's an art in which IP within the company will vary greatly from one product to another between hardware, firmware, and, and software, and between one industry player to another. It is not predefined. There is no predefined standard that use this thing for IP and you'll catch it all. But more importantly, um, it's also shared in a very creative way because it is innovation. And there's no predefined rules of, of how that creativity happens. Um, but that level of creativity makes the attack surface much more expansive than people can sometimes appreciate in which you're not there, just as with healthcare, you're not there to stop them from doing their jobs of creating some of the best technologies the world has ever seen. You're there to keep them safe. And, and sometimes they're the ones that put themselves at risk because they don't know what they don't know. But exactly. those that better have a, a, a better idea of their data and what controls are in place and if those controls are actually reducing risk, that is what being in control of your assets look like. And if you're not, something's going to happen sooner or later. And I would say that probably 90%, I'll go out on a limb, I'd say probably 90% of the companies out there really don't know all of the data that they collect. And I think that's the, the biggest problem that we have as societies. We're, we're putting so much data out there. And as an individual, I try to keep track of where my data, where I'm giving my data and where that, where that data flows to. Um, but a lot of people, if they're looking for, if they're going to buy something and they have to write, you know, fill out a piece of paperwork, or whatever, they're, they're more than willing to fill out everything and hand back the paper and not knowing where that data is going. Um, but not only, you know, companies need to, be, need to be more responsible when it comes to housing data, but individuals really need to look at themselves as well, I think, and look at where their data is going and how willing they are to give that data away. Um, because they hear about the data breaches all the time that everybody's like, well, you know, that's Visa and oh, shame on Visa. No, shame on you. 
you should know where this data is going. And the fact that there's a data breach, you should be on top of that. Um, as soon as they announce it, you know, there's steps to take to, to help secure your, your assets. Um, but a lot of people, they just fire that data off and forget it. But, but, but Mike, if you, if you look at the world that we live in, um, how many different systems do you interact with on a daily basis oh, to be able to track that? And, 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 and the, 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 the CIO for a very, very large um, high-tech company shared with me as we were delivering services to protect their very valuable IP mm-hmm. is that this data was created through technology. It can only be managed through technology. technology. And, and, and really only until recently with some of the other technological advances with the, the, the NoSQL databases, the, the advanced data analytic platforms, the volumes of data became so overwhelming that you as a human could not keep up. And what you don't know sooner or later was gonna get you in trouble. So it's, it's, it's a challenge for some of the biggest companies in the world, including some of the coolest companies in the world that are startup. So day one, you're in business. If you can't get control of your data, you're dealing with data risks that are likely beyond your tolerance level. You know it's not the right thing to do. But then from a consumer perspective, the overwhelming volume of data and the ease of so many different systems, Mm -hmm. it is truly impossible for any individual to to get control of that um, Mm -hmm. without additional solutions. Yeah, to- totally. And I think that's a, a great platform for, for Envision X as well. You know, it, it's a solution to a problem. Yeah. And I, I think in our industry, in cybersecurity, it seems there's a whole lot of companies out there that see this get rich quick, you know, industry. It was jump into cybersecurity, create a company, no overhead, <laughs> pull some money out and we're good. Um, but I like the ones that actually pose a solution to a problem. And I think that more companies that come onto the scene need to come with a solution instead of Addressing a problem, come with a solution. And I think that's what you're doing, which is really cool. Um, so you mentioned Colin Powell. So I have a, a, a passion for, for Colin Powell. Um, when he was in the military and leading our troops, like I couldn't think of a better president than Colin Powell. But I once heard him say, and it shocked me, uh, someone from the media asked him if he was going to run for president. And he looked at him off camera and said, you know, the people who are qualified for the job, don't want that job. And I mean, that's all he had to say because he, to me, he's the most fascinating man that I've ever served in the military with and was under some sort of direction from Colin Powell. Like he's a, he's a fantastic guy. So tell me about working with him. What, what was it like working with Colin Powell? Uh, a, a true, truly phenomenal man. Uh, one that you've got the sense out of the gate, he actually cares. And so no matter what he was dealing with, it was from a sense of um, I'm doing this because it's the right thing to do. Sometimes the, the, the answers he would give may not be the more popular one, which, you know, is part of what we're seeing in a lot of the, the political world these days. But, you know, he's coming from a trusted and very credible, uh, credible perspective. And so at the end of the day, uh, one of the things I think make one of the best leaders in the world, do you trust the guy who's in charge? Mm-hmm. And universally, many people will tell you no. Right. Um, that, that, that just because they're the boss doesn't mean I trust him. 
But if you're in a position of leadership and you and they truly feel that you've got my back and whatever we're doing together is going to make the world, if not the company, a better place to work in. Mm-hmm. That's that was my experience with Colonel Powell. Did not spend a whole lot of time with the man, as you as you can imagine. But oftentimes he would just come down uh, with with no notice and just walk the floor. Yeah, yeah. He seemed he seemed like a pretty uh, pretty genuine guy. Like all the interviews I, I've seen him on, um, I followed him for a very long time because he was so fascinating. But all the interviews, he seemed very genuine. You know, yeah. there was very little embellishment it was just straight to the point and very trustworthy um so what would you say your your career highlight is so far career highlight um beyond building in in vision x which has just been a personal journey for decades Mm -hmm. of understanding that these breaches don't have to be this bad Mm -hmm. it's 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 to the point that um they don't know their data and which data protection out of many of the things I see with a lot of my cyber professionals, one, it's really hard, but but two, it's something that the operating model was never really properly defined. And in which because of the privacy regulations in which privacy matters, it matters a lot, but most companies didn't get into business to be compliant with privacy data. It's, it, was, it was more or less an, an, an after effect, depending on the industry that you're in. But my thing is, um, if you can understand your data, and I mean all of it, without exception, without excuses, all of the things that are data-driven, that are not limited to privacy or, or, or cyber, when you're dealing with data migration, who wants to take bad data from your data center to the cloud? Right. When you move when, when, when you move from your old house to the new house, I'm pretty sure you do some kind of a purge. One of the things I, I, I discovered when I was helping um, a very, very notable um, high tech company in the EU that was selling off one of its major components to another high tech player in the U.S., mm-hmm. um, but then was going to use its other IP um, to generate and, and retain itself as a multi-billion dollar entity day one as a new co, we had to go through five petabytes of unstructured data in petabytes. 90 days petabytes. In 90 days or less, dispersed over 13 global data centers. And since the, the funds were already in the, uh, the company that was selling off the IP, uh, already had 8 billion in their account, after 90 days, if they didn't complete the data carve out, they would have to give back a hundred million dollars a month. So it was an opportunity of taking a notion that I had about how I value the speed and efficiency of going through so much data, that five petabytes, a little bit over 4.3 billion files. Mm -hmm. They had to go through legal review, through through the the, the chief scientists. It had to go through HR because some of the privacy data that was gonna go with it, as well as some of the business strategies. But believe it or not, we came up with the solution, an approach and methodology that accounted for all of that data in which we met and inventoried 4.3 billion files. All of the stakeholders for the company that was selling off the IP agreed that we got it right. And then the acquiring company agreed that they got it right. And the deal closed ahead of schedule and didn't have to pay back a dime. 
This wow. was my epiphany, my epiphany, Mike, that there's no reason why we can't get complete control of our data. It's the fact that it's not a technology issue. It is a process issue in which the process is not even defined. There's, there's limited process to even protect privacy data of how do you do it uh, from a, 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 a create through end of life cycle and also allowing data to die, which is becoming part of the process of collecting everything forever and not thinking that it's going to impair your ability to, um, to, to be good at what you do. So data hoarding is not a good thing. Right. So that was, that was my epiphany. Looking at how you can get control of all your data, having defensible um, business logic of how you let data die, um, and trusting in the controls for data that after you inventory it, this data is more valuable than everything else. How do you then continually monitor that data so you feel like, okay, something bad can happen, but it will not be the house burned down. We'll see the smoke. And we might have a little fire, but it will still be more of our control versus, yeah, they got it all. And, and that's key because nowadays, I mean, ransomware, we've seen that is it's a big business now. I mean, they have business units, they have companies behind this, multiple groups, multiple phases of collection and, and distribution. Yeah. And just watching that, you know, getting into the underground and watching how these groups take that data, monetize data and how they collect it is just shocking because I remember back in the day, it was, you know, a group of hackers here, a group of hackers there, but no, no, now we have call centers. Now we have help, you know, support lines. If your, your ransomware is not working properly, you can call in. Um, so, you know, theft of data and, and privacy is, is huge. I think just recently I listened to a podcast and they were talking about kids are not being targeted um, and having their data stolen. And before they're even 18 and they have, a credit score of like 400. Yeah. <laughs> like the, the thieves are taking their data and creating people. And this has been going on for years. And it's just, I, I don't know what the, what the end game, what the end solution for complete data privacy is. And this is why I say that when you take, so I, I did a, a proof of concept. I took what I consider a canary token, right? I built a profile with data behind it, you know, personal data and just start filling stuff out on the internet just to see what would come back. Yeah. And just off of small pieces of data, you would be shocked how many people touch that data that's not the company that you're submitting it to. You know, just watching the flow, it was shocking that we allow that many people in that chain of custody for that data. And I think that's another thing the industry you really need to take a look at is, do you necessarily need that many stops for that data? Do you necessarily need all of those third parties to be included in the vehicle of that data? Um, I think we can we can look at that like the supply chain uh, right now. I think I think we can minimize a lot of the extra travel that our data goes through, and with travel comes risk. You know, I look at it just like on on the combat field, right? You know, if you're going from one fob to the next, you're not going to roll up in a Nissan. You know, you're going to be in a Humvee, something protected because you know the transmission. It's dangerous, and same way with data. If you look at data like you look at any asset once you ship it out, it's important stuff. So you're going to follow from point A to point B. Um, and I, I'm, I'm really shocked that there's not more AI focus on protection of data and looking at how data travels uh, and do predictive analysis. Do you think there's room in data privacy for AI? Oh, yeah. No, uh, AI is, is, is already there at, at certain levels 
for the 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 auto identification and the classification uh, of, of data, but uh, and, and and we do that in our platform as well. But the bigger thing is, okay, now that it's classified, I know what it is. Mm-hmm. I've got fifty other questions about right. that data, and those questions go back to, am I in control? And so one of the questions that you mentioned about your third-party vendors, well, many companies still struggle to even identify all of the third-party vendors and logically tell and form what data are we giving these guys? Mm-hmm. It's hard for the direct contract with those third parties. What do you think those third parties are doing after their next top that you know they got the data from you and then this is what they're also doing? Yeah. So it, it, it's, it's that lack of vis- visibility, that sure. lack of transparency but sometimes it's a lack of a question even being asked right. and then putting in these contractual limitations of what is permissible or not. So if you don't put it in by default, um, they may be doing this in ways that will be much more expansive than what you would ever imagine. Oh, for sure. For sure. So cybersecurity is a pretty, you know, high speed, low drag type industry, same way with the military and I'm sure the government. What do you do to keep yourself balanced? What, what does Glenn do outside of cyber, cybersecurity and being a superhero? What does Glenn do to keep himself balanced? Well, it's uh, <laughs> my, my, my world is, 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 is not pure cyber for sure. It really is more focused on the asset, the data, and, 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 and just appreciating that even in, 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 in my you know, personal life, looking as, as you mentioned before, um, how I see my data being processed, how I see other business transactions happening. It happens no matter where you're going. If you're driving in a car that is a connected car and all the other things that it's now connected to your phone, there's so many things that go on that go through my mind of what's, what's happening with this information just by listening to, to the music uh, in, in, in the car and, and having certain driving patterns somebody's making sense out of this mm-hmm. in, in, in ways that um, I don't always understand and appreciate, but the data's out there. So okay. those are the things that kind of keep me uh, going and, and saying the more we know, the better we'll be um, because not knowing is not good. Um, but, 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 but those are the things that really keep me going. Cool. Cool. So you have any hobbies that you enjoy doing outside of, you know, business and, and the world in general? Huge, huge, uh, jazz enthusiast in which I am so happy that I can listen to live music again. Um, big, big fan of, 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 of live jazz. Um, also have a COVID puppy. Matter of fact, he just turned two on the 4th of July. Awesome. So he's no longer a puppy, but now 95 pounds of joy. Um, and, and, and love just going for long bike rides along the beach. Uh, I live in uh, Marina del Rey or just taking nice long strolls with my girlfriend on the beach. It just the simple things to me keeps me grounded. Yeah, I think I think the, the older I get, the more I'm into the more simple things like taking walks or, you know, just like hanging out in the park or something, um, because working nine to five and then all the other things that I do is just like I hear the buzzwords 24 seven. And sometimes I just want to get away from anything civilized and technical, you know, take me out in the woods where I can't hear the buzzwords. I'm good. Um, but yeah, our, our industry moves so quick and the technologies, you know, especially healthcare. And what one point I want to make before, before we end the, the podcast is 
I kind of look at healthcare like I look at critical infrastructure when it comes to security and technology, because these industries have been a lot around a lot longer than the internet has. And so the double-edged sword that we face with a lot of infrastructure is it was built in mind with no internet, right? So bringing that whole infrastructure onto a protected platform, people to understand how hard it is to get all of the grids onto new technology. So it's a, it's a progression and it's a work in progress. And I, I feel like healthcare is sort of the same way. Um, you know, I, I have an intimate connection with, you know, med tech because I have a pacemaker and I, I kind of watch the trends. But what I see is these hospitals and, and the equipment, a lot of the money for research was dumped into like new CT scanners or new procedures when really we should, probably should have been splitting that between new equipment, new technology and securing the old technology. Um, because a lot of the hospitals I've been in, unfortunately, the infrastructure is not very protected. Um, with the Wi-Fi, I, there was one test I did on the East Coast for a state hospital, and the Wi-Fi was connected. The guest Wi-Fi was connected to the OR, which was really interesting. Um, yeah, I don't think they got their funding from the state that year. Uh, <laughs> some, some of the interesting things, you know, I, I see these, these old archaic industries that are trying to protect themselves from current, you know, risk on the Internet. And they're just, they're not, they haven't been into technology long enough to be able to take take on that responsibility alone. And I think with, with your group, with Envision X, I think that the sky's the limit when it comes to protecting data. And I, I'm glad that another company's coming in to, to focus on providing that security or that insight into that data. Because, you know, we, we work a lot on perimeter. We work a lot on web application, Wi-Fi, Signet, all that stuff. But I don't think enough attention is put into data and following data. Cambridge Analytica really busted that open for us. But it seems since then, the, the media hype has just kind of sizzled. And that, that risk is still there. And it just people, people aren't talking about it enough. Um, but it was, it was awesome having you on the show. It was, it was an honor. I really appreciate it. And I wish you the best of luck with Vision X. I know it'll go really good places. And if, if you need help, I'm here anytime. But thanks, thanks for being on the show. Yeah, no, my, my, my pleasure. And uh, I'll likely take you up on that offer. Awesome. Awesome. Well, with that, I'm going to go ahead and sign off and I will see you guys in a week, hopefully, if not before then, and uh, stay tuned. Thanks a lot. All right.